I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. Coming up, we hear about recent research presented at the American Astronomical Society meeting. In part one of this series, we hear about magnetic fields around stars and citizen science contributions to research. Over the course of five days in early January, more than 2,500 astronomers attended the American Astronomical Society's 243rd meeting. These meetings are held in various locations around the country. The first was in Williams Bay, Wisconsin in September 1899. This recent meeting was held in New Orleans, Louisiana. At these meetings, scientists, students, administrators, and others gather to hear talks about new research from planets to black holes to galaxies and interstellar gas. There are workshops to discuss new ideas, possible missions, learning programming, and career sessions and networking. Representatives from NASA the National Science Foundation and other agencies attend to give updates and get feedback from the researchers. There is vibrant hallway conversation and even an open mic night where astronomers show off their non-science skills. I talked with a small but diverse selection of the scientists who attended this meeting, often referred to as the AAS meeting, and in this edition of How on Earth and upcoming episodes, we will hear some of the work going on in astronomy-related research. First, we hear from Dr. Travis Metcalf, a research scientist at the White Dwarf Research Corporation in Golden, Colorado. His AAS talk was about one particular star called 51 Pegasus, or 51 Peg for short. He explains why just a single star in the constellation Pegasus is of such interest. As Dr. Metcalf describes it, 51 Peg is a rock star among stars. 51 Peg was the first sun-like star outside of our solar system where another planet was found in 1995. It was the first of many. There are now 5,500 plus confirmed exoplanets around other stars. But this is undoubtedly the most famous one uh, and garnered the discoverers a Nobel Prize in 2019. Our task was to look at the magnetic environment around this star. 
Uh, it's a middle-aged sun-like star, averaged by any other uh, metric, except that it ha has this big Jupiter orbiting around it closer than the orbit of Mercury, right? A hot Jupiter. A hot Jupiter. So we were interested, what is the space weather environment of this iconic planetary system? And so to make those kind of measurements, we went to the Large Binocular Telescope in Arizona. It is uh, two 8.4-meter mirrors, so it has the collecting area of a 12-meter telescope, which makes it the largest optical telescope in the world. And we pointed this thing at some naked-eye stars, including 51 Peg. <laughs> And the reason we used a huge telescope to observe a very bright star is because the measurements that we're making are of the polarization of starlight across the spectral line, which we have to resolve by separating the light out into a spectrum. And the variations that we expect in the polarization of light are of order 10 parts per million. And the polarization is caused by the magnetic field of the star imprinting a directionality on the starlight. Now, if you take these sort of measurements every day as the star is rotating, um, then you can reconstruct the full three-dimensional magnetic field of the star in much the same way as a MRI reconstructs a picture of the inside of your head as a <laughs> magnet rotates around it, right? And this is interesting because the star just still appears as a point. You're That's not right. actually making a picture of the star, but the fact that it's rotating, you can kind of map it out this way. That's right. And the technique, it's called spectropolarimetry, is only sensitive to the largest scale magnetic fields. So think the dipole field of the Earth with a north and a south pole, but also slightly more complex fields that have four poles or eight poles. But beyond that, you can't really see like small magnetic features like you would see the sunspots on the sun, mm -hmm. right? Just the big scale, uh, large scale magnetic field. So what does seeing the magnetic field of 51 peg get you? <laughs> well, when you combine this with other information about the stellar properties, the, the rotation rate, the rate of mass flowing off of the star as a stellar wind, uh, the basic stellar properties like mass and the radius, Put all these things together and you can actually estimate how much that magnetized stellar wind is exerting a torque on the star in the middle of the system, gradually slowing its rotation down. Now, astronomers have had this picture for 50 years that you know stars are born rotating relatively quickly with very strong magnetic fields. But this process of magnetic braking, where the magnetized wind sheds angular momentum over time and gradually slows the rotation. And the slower rotation powers a weaker magnetic field. And these two things sort of feed off of each other during what everybody thought would be the whole life of a star like the sun, which is billions of years. Yes. So the sun's about halfway through its 10 billion year lifetime. And over the last several years, we found evidence that this process doesn't, in fact, continue indefinitely through the lives of star, but in fact, somewhere in the middle of the story, around the age of the sun, there's a plot twist, <laughs> and this magnetic braking that normally uh, has the rotation and magnetism of stars decreasing in tandem suddenly breaks 
uh, and magnetic braking stops operating in stars hmm. around middle age rather suddenly. Hmm. Why is it interesting that suddenly in, when a star hits middle age, this braking no longer seems to work? Right. So stars have this sort of midlife crisis. <laughs> and our theories explain exceptionally well the first half of, of the star's life where rotation is slowing down. But what we found is that at a certain rotation rate for a given mass of a star, there's a sudden decrease by a factor of 10 in the strength of this magnetic braking. And the cause of this change is a sudden reorientation of the morphology of the magnetic field from the largest scales, like the Earth's magnetic field, to more complex fields. And this has two effects. One, it weakens the magnetic braking, but it also throttles the stellar wind a little bit because there's more closed loops sort of bottling up that stellar wind and not allowing it to escape and shed the angle of momentum. And the net result is that the space weather of these stars beyond middle age suddenly becomes very tolerable, very even keeled, if you like. Like, like a pleasant beach. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So 51 Peg, turns out, is one of the stars that is beyond this transition. Uh, so it's already undergone the transition to weakened magnetic braking. Uh, and it's done so at a rotation rate that is slightly faster than the sun and removed any ambiguity that may have existed before about whether the sun itself is already in this mm. phase. We'd long suspected that it was, but this uh, was the final piece of evidence that we needed to definitively say that the sun, our solar system, is already in this weakened magnetic braking regime. Here's where it gets very interesting. If you ask, when did the sun make this transition in its past? It happened a few hundred million years ago. And that coincides with the point at which life in the oceans emerged onto land, right? Mm -hmm. Before that, the sun was magnetically much, much more active and much, much more uh, turbulent, if you like. And so life under the oceans was, of course, well shielded by all the water. And it wasn't until the sun made this transition that life emerged onto land once the magnetic environment became more stable. Interesting. So we have to ask ourselves whether this might be a prerequisite for the development of more complex life on land like humanity. Interesting. So we might owe our non-aquatic existence to magnetic breaking of our sun, but I assume this might help us think about what stars to look at for planets that might harbor life. Exactly. Suddenly you can narrow the search. If this is more than just a coincidence, sure. you can narrow the search to focus on stars that are middle-aged and older. So you just cut out half the stars right there. Easier to find that needle in the haystack. Exactly. And to be fair, there's all kinds of life has existed on Earth for billions of years before this transition. But if what we want to find is life that's easy to identify, maybe through technosignatures or radio signals, you know, dolphins are extremely intelligent, but to my knowledge, they never developed radio communications. <laughs> <laughs> 
So they might be hard to find on other planets. That was Dr. Travis Metcalf, a research scientist at the White Dwarf Research Corporation in Golden, Colorado, talking about how studying magnetic fields around other stars, like 51 Peg, can inform us not only to look around middle age and older stars in our search for life on other planets, but what might have impacted the evolution of life here on Earth. If you just joined us, you're listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and today's show features part one of some highlights of topics presented at the recent American Astronomical Society meeting. Next, we talk with Dr. Laura Truey, Vice President of Science Engagement at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago and the Principal Investigator for Zooniverse. She starts by explaining what is Zooniverse? Zooniverse is the world's largest platform for people-powered research. It's also referred to as citizen science or participatory science. It's an open source platform and it powers research across the disciplines from astronomy to zoology, cancer research to climate science, arts and humanities. So you could classify galaxies or tag penguins or transcribe historic documents or mark the structure of cells for cancer research. So that's what Zooniverse is. Wow. So you have a lot of different places people could hook in depending on their interests. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, it started in astronomy with one project called Galaxy Zoo. And then it was driven by researchers' needs, whether it was camera traps generating millions of images across the Serengeti Desert or biomedical research, all the images of cell structures. And so researchers having a need for data processing in some way. And then us through Zooniverse and other platforms like it, seeing that there's so much capacity and interest and potential for the public to help in that step of the research and help in a meaningful and valued and authentic way. So it sounds like you have no lack of people who are interested in joining. Yeah, it was amazing. That first project, Galaxy Zoo in 2007, we thought maybe dozens of people would join. And in that first year, it was 150,000 people participated and gave millions of classifications of galaxies. In 2023, we celebrated welcoming our 2.6 millionth registered participant. Um, so yeah, it's wild. And Those are amazing huge numbers. Yeah, yeah. From, I assume, from all over the world. All over the world, 190 plus different countries. There's about half are based in the U.S., 30% or so based in the U.K., because we're a partnership between the Adler Planetarium and Oxford as the two main host institutions. But then, so the half plus 20, so the rest, like 30%, are all around the rest of the world. It, it's a great opportunity for people, as long as you have an internet connection, I assume, you can participate in 
cutting edge research in science. Yeah, that's part of the magic. All you need is the internet. And we have a Zooniverse mobile app also. So even just on your phone, I do this as part of my commute. It's very relaxing to swipe left or right. Is there an animal here in this image or not? So there's a browser-based experience where it can be more complex tasks. And then there's the, the Zooniverse mobile app, uh, but very, very accessible. What is a good project and how does the researcher know that just random people will do a good job? Uh, that's an excellent and a deep part of knowing that you have to create robust and valid data. You never want to waste the public's time. There's a, an important aspect of building trust with the community and making sure that whatever the task is, the researchers will very much use the results from it. So we can take the chimpanzee project as an example. So there's um, short video clips from uh, wildlife reserves in Africa of different chimps. It's a project led by the Max Planck Institute in Germany in collaboration with the conservationists in the African wildlife reserves. So there, the task is broken down. So it's short video clips. And the idea is you're looking to see what species is in there and what behavior they're showing. And when the team approached us and said, we have this really big data set, we saw Zooniverse as a, a tool for unlocking these data. Um, the first step is they use our project builder. So this is a free DIY project builder platform to build the project. It's a browser-based simple interface. And then um, they make it as simple as possible for you know, five-year-olds to 95-year-olds to participate. And then a key step is we send it out to about 80,000 of our participants have signed up to be beta reviewers. So they want to check out a project before it publicly launches so they can give feedback on what's clear, what's unclear, what's working, what's not. And the researchers are looking at the data classification results to make sure they're getting the quality they need. So every image or video clip or audio file is classified by not one person, but by many people. I can't remember the number in that chimpanzee project, but typically in, in ecology projects, maybe 15 or 25 people classify each subject. And then those results are combined into an aggregate result. And then you also upload a set of data that experts have classified. You compare the consensus results to the experts and make sure you're getting the quality you need. So most camera trap projects, it's like 97% of the time, the consensus agrees with the experts in the 3% of the images where they don't, it's typically because the the animal's really far away. And mm. so it's hard to tell mm. what it is. And even the experts don't agree with each other for half of those images. So same general process. If it's an astronomy project or an ecology project, it's multiple classifiers taking the consensus result, checking against experts for a small subset of the data, and the research team making sure they're getting the quality they need. And so everybody wins on this. It's fun mm. to do. The researchers get work done that they could not possibly do themselves with so many people. Do these sometimes result in published papers? You have with hundreds and thousands, you can't have that many authors on a paper, but <laughs> do, do some of them get to be on papers? Yes. Yeah, so, so first, Zooniverse to date, we've had over 400 publications come out of the projects. Um, and we've had about 400 Zooniverse projects so far. For all the publications, there's always a link to an acknowledgments page of every single person that's classified it on it so that there is a recognition of that effort and contribution. And then many of our articles, particularly in astronomy, the participants often get involved in deeper engagement or sort of advanced tasks. 
and many get involved in the writing of the article itself and are co-authors. And so now we wow. have, I think it's over 50 of the articles have Zooniverse participants as co-authors on the article, wow. which is fantastic. That is that is amazing. What a great opportunity. One of the Zooniverse projects is called Planet Hunters. And this is one I helped to present at the AAS conference recently. So they just had a new publication accepted. And what's exciting about it is... Um, so Planet Hunters is about sifting through hundreds of thousands of light curves from the TESS space satellite and is looking for planets around distant stars. So they discovered a planet with a 270-day period, so not too different from our own, in the habitable zone of a sun-like star. But what's neat is the star has a companion star. So our sun only has us, the planets, going around it. But this system has two stars and one of those stars happens to have planets around it. And one of those planets happens to be in the habitable zone of the star. Um, so it's it's a cool, it's pretty rare to have multiple star systems with planets. And then it's still relatively rare for us to find planets in that habitable zone. And so first, it's the public participants who saw this dip in the light curve and flagged it as something of interest to the Planet Hunters team. And then on top of it, that Planet Hunters project has what we call advanced participants. So people who go beyond the classifying to doing additional vetting alongside the researchers of potential planet candidates. So they look at data archives, they pull in additional information from other wave bands. They're seeing if there are other background stars that might be causing fake signals. And so the authors on that article are a mix of the, the researchers, Nora Eisner and her team, plus the Zooniverse participants who did all that advanced work. Um, it's, it's just a fantastic discovery, and it's the public making it possible, which right. makes it even better. We have a few projects along that area of astronomy. Yeah. So active asteroids is fantastic. And so there you're looking for asteroids, but the, the active element is because they may have water in it. And so you're seeing that in the images. Looking for and, fuzzy asteroids. Yeah. And it's all related to that deeper question of perhaps was it asteroids or these comet-like tails? Was that what brought water to Earth or right. all, the, all the questions about early solar system formation? And then there's the daily minor planet is another of those uh, looking for those types of objects in our solar system. Sure. I can't help but think of when you log in somewhere and says, you know, prove you're not a robot, click on all the squares that have stoplights. You know, now I'm thinking of click on all the squares that have elliptical galaxies or something like that. Right. <laughs> we have had conversations with like the reCAPTCHA uh, group or also with gaming companies that might have an interest in integrating Zooniverse into the gaming experience. If anybody is listening and would be interested in that type of collaboration, we're still keen to find um, that kind of uh, partnership. Yeah, there's many different ways and pathways for people to engage in this kind of experience. I'm sure you all have done this, but I could just sit here and I could think of probably a dozen projects to do this with. Well, you know, it was a real game changer when we launched the Project Builder tools in 2015. Mm. Because before that, it took, you know, we, we as a small web development team, we could only build maybe two or three projects a year. Each one was very custom, took a lot of time. Now we launch about 40 to 50 projects a year, and it's because people are using that browser-based project builder tool. And it also means that we used to only be able to do projects with like a million plus images because the time investment meant we needed to, to do it on a lot of data. Now we've had, like one of, I'm, I'm French, uh, 
And one of my favorite projects is a tiny little town in France. They just wanted to transcribe their genealogical records. And so we didn't even open up to the Zooniverse community. It was just the townspeople using the Zooniverse platform for the few hundred oh, um, you so know, scanned images. So if you have even a smallish data set, you know, a few hundred images, right. part of it is also just the fun of engaging the public. Like maybe you could do it, it would take you a few weeks, but it could take our participants maybe 24 hours. And it's just <laughs> purely the fun of that experience. And then when you publish on those results, it's giving back to this, you know, mm -hmm. really lovely community of people who just want to help in research and discovery. And so small is great. Big is great. Yeah, that part is very fun as one of the team members who gets to help researchers set, set projects up and make them happen. What's the best way to get a hold of you, either from the research side or the, hey, I want to do this fun side? Yeah, I mean, definitely go to zooniverse.org slash projects. That's where you can engage. I think right now there's 92 active projects. So just dive straight in. And then if you're a researcher who might think about this as a tool for unlocking your data, check out at zooniverse.org slash lab. That's our project builder platform. And then there's our contact info on the site to get in touch if you have any questions. Well, that's great. Thanks a lot for letting us know and being on How on Earth. <laughs> My pleasure. That was Dr. Laura Truey, Vice President of Science Engagement at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, talking about Zooniverse and how you can get involved in cutting-edge research through citizen science. Listen in to future episodes of How on Earth, Tuesday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU, to hear more in this series highlighting recent research presented at the American Astronomical Society meeting. all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music, Astronomy Domini by Pink Floyd. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Do you have questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>